Cooper here, another Baseball America podcast. Got a different kind of podcast that we started rolling out here at Baseball America. It's the Baseball America Tech Podcast. I've long been interested in the technology of baseball. I remember the first time I saw a Rapsodo, a Trackman, an Edutronic. There's a lot of different technology that influences the game, that affects the game, that that I, understandably it's hard to fully fathom and understand. And, and I hope that this podcast is going to help that. I'm going to talk to people involved with technology in baseball and, and get their insights on how we've gotten to where we are now, but also where we're going to go in the future. So with that in mind, we're going to talk to a lot of people who are involved with companies in technology. And I do want to preface this by saying I'm going to let them talk about their products. That doesn't mean this is an advertisement, uh, doesn't mean it's an endorsement, but at the same time, these are people who are deeply involved in baseball tech and as such, I want to hear their opinions. I want to hear what they say, and I hope that you will too. If it is something sponsored, we will flag that and let you know that it is sponsored. But these are not sponsored podcasts. These are podcasts where we talk to people involved in technology in baseball and get their thoughts, their opinions, and their insights into tech in baseball. Hey, everyone. We're back here another Tech in Baseball podcast here at Baseball America. Very excited today to be joined by Lucas McKnight. Lucas is the director of baseball at Visual Edge. We're going to talk about Visual Edge in this uh, podcast. But in addition to that, and one of the other reasons I wanted to talk to Lucas is Lucas has been involved in baseball in a variety of ways, both as a player, as a catcher, and then as a uh, scout, uh, cross-checker, assistant scouting director for the Cubs, a variety of roles has been involved in, you know, in tech and baseball, both as a player and then as a scout and then as a front office official and now working, which I got to say even more directly as far as tech and baseball. So Lucas, glad to have you here today Um, to start it off. Explain, you know, I said, you're the director of baseball at Visual Edge, but I'll let you, you, it's better for you to explain Visual Edge than I am. You know, so what does director of baseball at Visual Edge, what is Visual Edge? Yeah, so Visual Edge is actually close to a 20-year-old program, which by uh, tech standards is, is almost ancient. Um, but we're uh, a program that's used by MLB teams, NHL teams, Olympic athletes, numerous college bro- programs, uh, college softball, youth organizations. Um, and we're used as both a visual screening tool where we evaluate your, uh, your visual components, but then also as a training tool, a development opportunity for players to be able to improve their visual components. So um, we were developed uh, about 20 years ago by an ophthalmologist in the Chicago area named Barry Seiler. He was an early proponent of LASIK surgery and worked extensively with athletes, um, both, to, both to identify kind of uh, shortcomings in their vision and then to help them improve, um, both surgically. And then uh, he created Visual Edge on the side as well. So we evaluate uh, what we call the six core uh, visual characteristics, which are alignment, depth perception, convergence, divergence, recognition, and tracking. We evaluate those. Um, teams use this as a screening opportunity uh, in the draft as a, as a really reliable data component. And then to take it to the next level, all, all those visual components are malleable and they can be improved. Um, and with training, especially in our training program, um, all those components can be improved and we can show that there's real on the field uh, progress to be made if you can improve how you, how you uh, track things and, and, and how your, your vision system works 
um, especially in tandem with both eyes. When you say they can be improved, how much of this is kind of innate and how much of this is something where it's like, okay, the right, I guess I'm, what I'm asking is, is what is the range? If you have someone who has a convergence issue, how much of that is something that is just an issue and how much of that is something that can be through training uh, effectively, you know, resolved or improved to a level where what maybe you, someone was average, you know, can they become above average? You know, what yeah. are there limits or, or how much can yeah, be you know, done? Uh, we liken it. And I think, I think there are results over time. So it'd be similar to a weight training program that, uh, you know, if, if you're extremely weak, you can get stronger. Are you going to look like uh, Mike Stanton or, or Aaron judge? No, but, but you can improve. Um, what we can say is that when we test upper echelon players, they don't tend to have, you know, convergence issues. They almost all are average or above on their convergence. Um, so for us, that that's that's not a shock and that's not a coincidence. So um, yeah, I, I guess that was a little vague answer to you. You're not going to go from poor to excellent, but we think we can take you from good to, to very good or, or close to excellent. So um, like, like any skill, you can be improved. There's going to be limitations to, to each person that if they're, if they're starting at a very low threshold, they can't expect to be excellent, but they can improve. And um, maybe that's a difference in their game from, from not being able to play in college to, you know, being able to go to a D2 college and play. So it, it, it's different by individual. Right. I mean, it, this has a, a certain self-selection status to it, which is, is if you have significant issues with that, if you have depth perception issues, things like that, you're probably not going to get in baseball to the point, you know, maybe you can pitch, but you're not going to hit <laughs> to the point where you're, you're probably going, <laughs> the, yeah. the limitations are going to kind of weed you out before exactly, you ever get exactly. to the point of considering this. I would imagine. Yeah, when, when we test, uh, you know, especially when we're testing major league players or they come to us, there's a certain survivorship bias to where they all almost test well. Um, and it's not a shock that uh, good hitters see and track things really, really well and, and pick things up quickly. Um, so when we get to the top level, certainly there's a survivorship bias. I think when we see, you know, ages 17 to 21, we're doing some testing for the draft and we see guys with some pretty significant um, deficiencies. Um, that, that's a cause for concern and that that's a cause for worry. Then, and, and, you know, for the kid, that's an opportunity to train and get better if, if that's where they find themselves. But yeah, cer certainly at the top level, there's survivorship bias that, um, you know, that, players with crummy visual skills just don't advance to the top level because they're not able to, to, to react to high level pitching. When you were with a, you know, when you were with a club, is that something that how much of a factor, you know, if, again, when you're talking the 1722, I would assume we're not talking generally about the first round picks. I mean, there has been the, the most famous example I can think of from a visual standpoint is go back to the seventies and eighties. I believe the reds drafted an outfitter one year who discovered could not really see at night. And, um, you know, he'd never played at night yeah. before he was drafted and he didn't last very long in the minors, you know, things like that. Nowadays, I imagine that's not happening that much, but is this, I mean, I, I would imagine it's, it's a contributing decision maker yeah. when it comes to weighing players or are there players who simply much like a player with a terrible uh, psychological score on test I've known to have been removed from, you know, from clubs boards. Is, is that Kind of the yeah, range. yeah. Uh, it's, speaking both from a club perspective and now from the, from the private tech side, um, this is a data point in teams' draft models, um, and you know it's 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 obviously an important data point when it comes to hitters. They they have to be able to see and track things well. I think where we're a little bit unique on, on this end is we've been doing this for over 15 years, so we actually have uh, you know a, a bucket load of evidence to show that our scores actually correlate and equate to performance on the field. We do, we've done it on our website with SEC scores. We've done it with MLB scores that 
Um, kids, kids that score well and, and have good visual characteristics um, go on to be good players. And because of that, it, it can be an important and, and uh, predictive data point in, in any draft model. And we know, we know that's the way teams are, teams are drafting now and, and, and how they're lining up their draft boards is by pretty sophisticated modeling. Um, anytime you can add a predictive data point, it makes you a little bit more correct than your, your competition and your opponents. So um, yeah, all, all these, all these visual screening tools have become, you know, uh, an important, an important screening point and an important data point in models. Okay, so now I'm going to ask you the really big and broad question. Going back to your days as a player and comparing it to now, how different is baseball on the evaluation, the scouting, the, the, the draft side now? You know, we don't even get into training yet. We'll just get into, you know, on the, on the evaluation side. How different is it now from it was whether, you know, we look at the, when you were a player or when we look at when, you know, even just 10 years ago when you were scouting? Yeah, I, I, I yeah, it, it's it's moved in some pretty seismic waves. You know, I think you, I, I was a high school player coming out in 1998, and uh, um, you know, back then, scouting reports are what they had. And then some, you know, we, I, we all know the story of Moneyball. I mean, we saw what the Red Sox did and started using, um, you know, it, it, analytics and, and using the stats to their advantage to start making smarter draft decisions. And now it, it just seems like every year there's a new tech and a, and a, uh, a new data point to consider, um, whether it be TrackMan and, you know, both for pitchers and for exit velocities. And, and we have blast motion sensors and we have screening tools like Visual Edge. And there, there's a lot of other good ones out there. Um, and and it's, just, it's just one to the next. And we have high-speed cameras capturing all sorts of, sorts of interesting things. So uh, there's just so many more data points to consider. I think the draft, uh, and you probably know the research as well as I do now at this point, uh, I think the draft has gotten more efficient. I think we've gotten smarter. I think we've, we've made better decisions. I don't think the decisions are perfect. Um, there, there's some blind spots and models that we can all admit. Uh, maybe teams have gone too heavily to college bats at, um, at, um, and, and, and shorted out other, other points. Um, but yeah, uh, the, the, all, these, all these tech components, they're all necessary now to make a decision. And there's just so much more robust of a data set needed um, before teams are comfortable drafting a player as it was when I was in high school, where the opinion of, uh, you know, two or three or four scouts was all they needed to, to line up their draft board to make a decision. When you say that, like you mentioned about the models, that's something to me that like, if you go back, I've been at Baseball America now, I guess, almost 20 years. And 20 years ago, you didn't really hear about you know, when you said, well, why did this team do this and that? And again, teams had predilections. You know, there's this team that, you know, again, Moneyball, the Moneyball draft, which in hindsight, actually, like it, that's the part of Moneyball that doesn't hold up all that well. It's like, <laughs> ah, ha, ha, you idiots. You drafted Scott Casimir. Throw your draft pick away. You know, Prince Fielder. Why would you take Prince Fielder? You know, and, you know, no, no, you'd rather have Prince Fielder than Jeremy Brown. You know, no, no offense to the A's, but, you know, yeah, yeah, sure. but, but. But at the time, there really, I, I didn't hear of models at the time. And now, again, everyone has their, every club has their different, but, but it is something where there's obviously been kind of more of a, it's a much more systematic approach to it and saying, instead of it being, okay, we're going to gather everyone together, you still take a lot of input, but from everything I understand, it's now much more of, no, this is how the board lines up rather than, hey, let's put all these names on you know, on magnets and then 
move them around and argue about it. Is that? Yeah, yeah. No, I, I think systematic is the word you use. I think that's probably the right one. Um, I think it's it's uh, modeling has allowed teams to be more systematic, more disciplined, and more consistent in how they line up a draft board um, and uh, less subjectivity to it. Now, on the other side, um, have we gone too far at times? Yeah, probably so. And have we leaned too hard on uh, just drafting guys where we're comfortable with the measurements and excluding some other guys where we're just uncomfortable? Yeah, that, that's that's happened as well. Um, I, I think, though, that we've gotten better over time, and I think it'll continue to get better as we as we stay disciplined and we stay systematic, we stay consistent with how we're going to line up our board and how we're going to make our decisions. So, um, yeah, I, 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 yeah, it's it's just I, I mean, there's always been some sort of model. At some point, it was just a subjective model in the scouting director's well, head. Yeah, it was um, in the head. Now, now we've got. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Now we've gotten to where we can, uh, you just apply each data point a little bit more consistently um, and be a little bit more objective about how we line up the board and, and how we move magnets around and, and what we're comfortable drafting. We'll be right back with more of Luke's McKnight, but before that, a quick message. I, I'm going to put you on the spot, but over the last 10 years, like what do you, I mean, I see the pervasiveness of information now is so much it's dramatic how much more is out there now when you talk about I, what we've gone from as I see it is is there went from a time where there was kind of like I would describe amateur scouting as something where it was an information scarce environment where mm -hmm. every piece of information you could gather was significant because when it was just simply eyes on the ground the more scouts you had out there um, the more you saw but on top of that, the more a scout basically worked his network and had his area, every fragment of information was valuable because it was fragments. I mean, it yeah, was, yeah. okay, we saw this player who we're considering drafting five times. Now, the other, if it was a, let's say it was a Friday starter, you know, in college baseball, there was 10 starts there where you may have heard a little bit about those, but those I would describe it as, as maybe a Psalm 10 times, but there would be starts that simply didn't exist in, you know, in the, in kind of your evaluation yeah. of a player and, you know, with a shortstop, you okay. Maybe you saw him, you know, the area scout had seen him, you know, five or six or 10 times and then a cross checker saw him. And then maybe, a, you know, the scouting director saw him in this key series against a good pitcher or whatever, now I feel like, is it fair to say that we're in a much more pervasive information environment than, yeah, than yeah. we were? Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, night and day from what we can know about players to, to what we can know about them 20 years ago. I mean, we always laugh that, you know, uh, if you hear a new name at the ballpark, you know, you, you can look him up on your phone and look at his perfect game profile and know all sorts of things about him. And, and when he's playing next, even if it's a brand new name, you can, you can leave that game knowing a lot about that player after you watch some videos. So just a ton of truth to what you said. Um, I mean, Theo always said, Theo has a way of saying things eloquently, but, but, but always put it in the currency of the draft is information, you know, and it's always been an arms race for who has the most information and who has the best information and who's able to take that information and apply it to the draft so that they make, you know, better decisions than their opponents. But yeah, it's just, I mean, it's become an arms race now for information, right. That we, we want, uh, we want more opinions. We want better opinions. We want more objective opinions. We want opinions from 
TrackMan, and we want them from blast motion sensors, and we want force plate information, and uh, who can take all this and apply it best um, to, to their draft board to be able to make decisions. Um, but it, yeah, it, it's always been an arms race, but now it's just, you know, it, it, it's, it's always the next horizon. What's the new technology that we can apply to our draft, but also who can apply it the best, you know, because if we, you know, I, I think of like our early years of TrackMan where we had this info, it seemed really interesting. We didn't know what 17, uh, you know, TrackMan info about a 17 year old pitcher meant for when they were going to be 27 years old. We figured there was going to be something to it. And now I think teams are pretty good at uh, knowing what that means. But at the time, we didn't know much about it. It, it was useful to collect the information, but we had to be pretty judici judicious and pretty careful about how we we're going to actually uh, apply some of this information with these new and emerging technologies. That's still the case, but it's still going to be an arms race that it's worthwhile to collect all this information for when we're ready to, to be able to act upon it. Sometimes you have to start gathering it to know three years down the road what it means is that a fair way to put it because always you always yeah you're, you're always after and gathering new information sources and you don't know if they're going to be uh, pertinent to draft decisions or not um but yeah you have you have to you have to capture it for quite a while before you're able to act on it the other thing is if you wait until it's you know ironclad proof that this works there's probably a handful of teams that have already acted on it and you're just playing catch up at that point so a lot of times you do have to take some calculated and some educated risks on Hey, this this seems like it has something to it. Let, let's plug it in. It's going to be a little bit speculative, but let's move. Let's think it's going to move our needle to a little bit more correct in our player evaluation. The tough thing also about this to all of this is, is and the game then is also continually changing to where, again, <laughs> I, you know, I've been at BA a long time. You've been involved this a long time. What we knew becomes what we don't know. And then what we didn't know becomes what we know. But at the same time, sometimes what you knew was true at the time, like, I, there was a I'm lot. Not sure, you know, I followed all that, but, I, but I get what I, you're I'll, I'll give an example, like with pitching. Right, there was a stretch of time where ground ball rate was viewed as very important. You know, and we had a stretch of time where I would say that there were teams. The Pirates were one of them that kind of emphasized. You know, that there was this emphasis of of kind of a pitching approach that I would say worked. It wasn't that it was a crazy pitching approach, but you know, we were. You heard a lot about two seamers. You heard a lot about working down in the zone, limiting fly ball, it's all that. Well, and then we had kind of a counter approach that happened among hitters where all of a sudden you had a whole lot of hitters who were like, please throw me that pitch. I will, I will do something with it. Yeah. And so then we're, you know, we're now in four seamers up and, you know, curveballs, you know, that pair with the four seamer and, you know, vertical movement and all that. And, Again, I feel pretty comfortable that that's very reasonable to say. That's something that teams are looking for now in a pitcher. Yeah, but I can't tell you that five years from now that's still going to be the thing that that maybe it is, but maybe it isn't. I don't, you know, I, I don't know. No, just just a cyclical game, right? I mean, the the the, pit, the hitters make an adjustment, and the pitchers just to survive, you know, make a different adjustment, and all of a sudden they swing ahead, and there's just kind of that that back and forth um, that, that's always going to be part of our game. It, it makes our game fun. Uh, I'd, I'd like more balls in play. So ho hopefully the, <laughs> the, the next move for hitters makes, makes that a little bit more fun. That, that's just the, the, the nature of, of a cyclical game. The other thing we always have to look at that if every team is, you know, valuing uh, four seamers high in the zone and, and downer curve balls, um, you know, it, it, it probably means we're overvaluing it at some, at some capacity. If everybody's chasing the same things, then there's probably some pretty good sinker ballers that, uh, you know, we're not valuing and, It'll probably be the Rays to figure it out next that, that uh, 
hey, we're, we're going to take all these sinker ballers uh, that everybody else is ignoring and we're going to plug them in and we're going to have a new style of team and a new style of bullpen that um, is going to be the next thing everybody chases. So, I mean, like any of these sports, it's a copycat league. What works, everybody else is going to chase. Um, but by the same token, if we're all chasing the exact same things, we're probably overvaluing it and there's probably some value to be had somewhere else. So always pays to be an early adopter. Um, but by the same token, um, you know, there, there, there's always a next horizon in baseball and there's always an adjustment from pitchers to hitters. And uh, I, I think we're just going to see that over time. It's part of the beauty of our game. I think also one of the challenges of it is being intellectually agile enough to take something, be an early adopter of something. But then even though you've had success with it, say, okay, now it's time to discard this advantage we have because what you just said, which is we had an advantage. We have to recognize that that advantage has now passed and now we have to move on to the next thing. That's hard to do because I mean, there's understandably human nature. I think a lot of times is, is to kind of fixate on kind of a, a grand idea that, that someone had when, in, as you said, with a cyclical game, sometimes the idea you had, which is great, now it's time to kind of discard it and move on to something else. Yeah, yeah. No, I think, and I think, I mean, it definitely applies to the best baseball organizations, the best sports organizations, and probably the best businesses as you study those. But being open-minded and being willing to move on is just a necessity. You know, what's working now in baseball is probably not going to be the same style of what's working 20 years from now. Like, that's just, just a fact for how our game has moved. So, the best organizations are always kind of aware of what's on the horizon and, and they're going to be able to apply it quickly. And again, that, that's going to apply to, to any sports organization, but any business too. And I think that's, um, if there's anything the Rays have just been brilliant at it, it's just that they, they're always aware of the next horizon. They're always able to apply it and they're always aware of what's undervalued. Maybe it's out of necessity because they're not going to spend money on the free agent side. Um, but they're always open-minded. They're always ready to and willing to move on to the next thing and, and, and apply it to the major league team. So there are largely on the draft side, there are basically six groups that we could say. There's the high school hitters, the high school pitchers. There's the junior college hitters and pitchers, smaller group right there, you know, but one that's a little stronger this year than most because of COVID and, and all that. And then there's college pitchers and college hitters. And obviously there are subgroups of all there. We could spend a whole lot of time talking about high school catchers and the risk <laughs> demographics of those versus college first baseman, right, right, first baseman and the risk demographics, those, all that. But if we said these six general buckets, it feels like now, like, is it fair for me to say that because of the development of technology, that on the pitching side, I feel like if you're if you're saying what teams can feel kind of not certainty because there's a lot of pitching development that goes on post draft, there's injury risk with pitchers and all that. But it's a very I feel like that that's something that generally teams feel like is a very all three of those demographics high school, junior college, or four year college are pretty quantifiable demographics that they feel a lot of comfort with now because of much of the technology gains of the last decade. Is, is that reasonable? No, I think, I think that's absolutely fair. It, I think it's especially been the advent of TrackMan. I mean, and, and kind of the, 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 the building up from there, right? We've got TrackMan, we've got Rhapsodo, we've got a host of others. We've got teams capturing pitch data with, with uh, pitch data with high-speed cameras now. Um, but, but it, it very much gives you an apples to apples comparison that, Hey, if you throw 95 and you have this sort of spin rate with this sort of spin access and this sort of vertical break, we know that pitch plays in the big leagues. 
And if you have that pitch and we think you're going to be able to throw it for strikes, it's going to be effective whether you're throwing it at Libertyville High School or if you're throwing it at, at Wrigley Field, uh, you know, later in the afternoon. So um, because of that, I, it's, it's given teams a lot of comfort in evaluating pitchers. Uh, we, we, there's still, as you said, there's still a host of development opportunities. There's still injuries. There's still attrition, all those sorts of things. But as it, as it applies to pure stuff, there's a lot of confidence now um, in, in, in what major league stuff looks like and what these um, pitchers need to do to, to be able to come major leaguers and have stuff that's going to compete at that level. Um, because of that, you know, whatever field they're throwing, um, I heard a wise man say if they're pitching to six-year-olds, uh, you, you'd be able to, if, if you had the right pitch tracking and, and the right pitch data, you could walk away from there with some level of confidence that, that's frankly amazing um, to knowing how that, that stuff might actually play in a major league or, or a pro baseball environment um, if you're able to get reliable tracking ingredients. So um, we, we just can't do that necessarily with, with high school hitters or junior college hitters, especially. There's just um, not, the, not that level of comfort um, not that layer of confidence that you could have um, with um, that, that you might get with the pitch data. The interesting thing to me is, is that, and I'm working on a story on this that may be out by the time this podcast comes out, but that I find fascinating is, is I feel like that if, as we sit here in 2021, the group that, that teams feel least confident about, one would think that junior college hitters who have gone through high school and now are in junior college, they'd be a step further. They're, you know, they're a step there's more maturity, all that, you'd feel more comfortable. But I feel like if you look at, I mean, college hitters, I think as far as hitters are the ones that understandably teams have the most confidence about, because if, if you're playing in the SEC, for example, or the ACC or the PAC, whatever, pick your, you know, your major college conference and you watch and see how that player performs. If, if a guy's facing Kumar Rocker on Friday and Jack Leiter on Saturday and Vandy's, you know, the rest of Vandy's staff on Sunday, there's a pretty solid correlation of understanding of how this player handles quality pitching. And I feel like the showcase circuit and all that for all the many things that it gets, you know, slammed for, it's done some of the same thing on the high school side compared to 20 years ago. When you were in, you know, when you were in high school, the, the the ability to face really top-notch velocity breaking balls and all that and show what a, a high school hitter can do against that was much more limited, I would say, than it is now where you know, Jordan Lawler, okay, it's not like a question where we're going, oh, how does Jordan Lawler handle velocity? You know, he's seen a ton of it and teams have seen him see a ton of yeah, it. Yeah. No, I, I think you're exactly right. I mean, the college hitters, <laughs> I mean, we just got really good models and really good statistical uh, information to give us a ton of confidence on those guys, you know, and, and maybe that's why uh, there's just so many college hitters going higher and higher in the draft than ever before. And just as you said, the, these high school hitters, you think back to it, think in their traditional year, um, you know, we see them at perfect game national, and then we're going to see them at PDP. And then we're going to see them uh, probably at, at East Cobb in some component. And then we're going to see them at the area code games. And we're going to see them at the East coast pro and we're going to see them probably in one or both All-American games. By the time it gets down to it, you're going to get close to 100 ABs, which is more than they're going to have in their high school teams anyway. And you've got a really good uh, feel for who can hit, who's got alarming strikeout rates, um, you know, et cetera. Uh, there's just no comparable with the, the JC hitters. We just we don't have that level of confidence. And I think because of that, it's just devalued them in some component in the draft. Um I still think there's probably some teams out there with really shrewd area scouts where there's good JUCO programs where there's there's hitters to be 
to be had there. Um, you know, that we're, we're, we're not drafting as many as we once did. And I think it's, it's a, it's a confidence issue um, amongst our modeling as much as it is anything. So to me, there's, there, there's value to be had there. There's some good players there. I'm Tom, I'm confident Tom Koshman's going to sniff out a few more. <laughs> he always does. I was down there competing with him in Florida and uh, there, you know, you, you hated to hear he picked somebody in the 12th round. You only saw once or didn't know very well. So you knew they were probably going to be a big leaguer and it was going to come back to bite you. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's been a confidence issue that we, uh, we don't have the confidence in drafting JC hitters. Like we have the confidence in drafting every other, de- every one of the other uh, six demographics you mentioned. Okay. As a scout, how much, again, it used to be all that you could see with your eyes in person. And we've also had, we talk about like the, the analytical data, the high-speed video and all that, but how much is just also the spread of video? I mean, to, at the purest basis level, I have, can have a very enjoyable night on Friday night, you know, stuck in my house, just bouncing between college games. And I'm not choosing, I remember the days where it was like getting a game on TV was nice. And now I can watch a, you know, pretty much almost, you know, most college teams on a Friday night, but throw in synergy to that on the, you know, on the major league baseball scouting level where you have video access of pretty much most every college player and high school player. How has that changed kind of how scouting is done? Yeah. Well, I mean, it just gives you it, it, on one level, it just gives you so much more confidence, right? That if, uh, you know, say you're picking 16 overall and there's, there's four college pitchers you're, you're considering, you're obviously going to get your look or maybe two um, if you're, if you're a national level uh, evaluator. Um, but beyond that, you know, that you can watch every pitch the kid throws from all year long and the, the weeks you're not there, you're still able to check in and, and watch, you know, the whole start or bits and pieces of that start that you want to watch to see how he's progressing, to see how he's holding his stuff, to see if there's ebbs and flows of his stuff. So it's really enormous. Um, it just, just gives you so much more confident that confidence that um, even if you don't have eyes on the ground, uh, you can check in on each player every week. I mean, that, that's just a, an enormous benefit um, that we just didn't have. I think at some point too, it, it, it brings up, does, does it change the nature of scouting? Can we leverage that uh, video to where, um, you know, maybe, maybe we're not beholden to uh, the Friday night pitcher schedule to where we, we travel to each week. Maybe we, you know, leverage the video, watch it that way. And it gives us opportunities to go watch high school players or JC players where we know there's a greater level of indecision and we know where, each scouting look is imminently more important maybe than, than watching Jack Leiter one more time. And we, we know what a terrific pitcher he already is. Um, so I, I, I think it, uh, as synergy becomes more widespread, I think it eventually changes the nature of, of, of how we attack the country each year as scouts and evaluators, knowing that um, we, can, we can use that uh, video to our advantage and the fact that everything's going to be recorded. And especially if we have familiarity with, familiarity with that player and we have a good area scout that knows the makeup, there, there's certainly things you lose by not being there. Um, but I, I think as, as synergy, we get used to it and we grow with it. Um, I think there gets to a level to where we use that to our advantage and we, we spend more of our time with our scouting looks on players to where um, those looks are imminently more important um, for, for what we think of that player and where he's going to fall on our draft board. You, you just hit on one of the things with makeup because that's the other part that I've had people say that that's kind of where we're still like when you, you said, like there's always the search for what's the next thing. And, you know, we talked about visual edge at start, you know, obviously I would say that's one that's already a present, which is, is, you know, studying, okay, how well, especially a hitter, how well does a hitter see, you know, 
there's the psychological makeup component, but there's also kind of almost a, you know, an intellectual component to it too. There's, that's one that obviously the teams are, are trying to drill in more and more and kind of, they've been doing this for a long time. I mean, the great scouts of 70 years ago were trying to figure out which is the player here who is going to run through a wall, is going to continually get better, and which is the player who's kind of happy to get drafted and they're, they're good. You yeah. know, that's that's always been a, a part of this. But but where do you think are kind of the the areas that are ripe for improvement in what we understand and what yeah. we know? Yeah, in the next I mean, it, it was definitely a chase for mine on uh, uh, with the Cubs that uh, I, I think the makeup component is, is a horizon we're going to be chasing, and I think it's going to be still be one of the most difficult. I mean, human behavior is really hard to predict. You know, I I, I have that with my kids, and 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 I know them imminently well, and they. They, they make weird decisions that, that I wouldn't expect them to make. Um, so I, I think that's an area we're going we're gonna to track and we're going to improve upon. And I think it's going to just continue to be an area of focus that we know it's hugely important. And you, you talk to any scout or anybody in player development, they, they can just tell you how important that is um, for the success of each player. Uh, but you talk to each scout as well, and you just tell them it's, it's really hard to predict when you're dealing with 17 and 18-year-olds that have never failed before in their life. Um, to know how they're going to respond when you plug them into a development system to where they're failing more than ever before. They're a long way from home. They're a long way from comfort um, and, and the game's changing on them. So uh, like, I think that's always going to be a chase. I think we're going to get better at that. Um, but I, I it, it's going to continue to be subjective. It's going to continue to be um, a, a, an advantage for teams that have wise veteran scouts that are able to make better reads on these people than, than their opponents. But um, that, that's a place we're going to chase. And I think the other obvious one is probably on the injury front, especially as it applies to pitchers that um, teams that can uh, find some sort of competitive advantage of keeping their pitchers healthy on the field, uh, performing at their max, um, whether it be, you know, workloads, et cetera. I think that's, a, that's a horizon that, uh, you know, I, I think 10 years ago, we, we saw that as a horizon as we did makeup, but I, I think those are things we're going to continue to chase. And I think there's always going to be a level of subjectivity that um, is going to make those a little bit more difficult as opposed to, you know, college performance data. Um, it's never going to be as clear cut as that. As much as we want it to be, it's going to continue to be subjective and it's going to continue to uh, be really, really uh, advantageous to have wise scouts that, that are good reads of people that have good gut feelings that ha have been through the trenches to, to know these things. So um, th th those just off the top of my head, those are, uh, two quick horizons I think we're going to be chasing probably for the next 10 years, but probably for the next 50 too. Right. Cause you said the subjectiveness of it. Like, it's funny, like we talk about makeup and it's like, we've had this long running debate on our Slack channel for work, you know, that about even what is makeup because there's so many different components to it. And it's like, it's kind of, you're talking about there's an on-field makeup and then there's other things and there's all these many components to it. And, you know, it, it's, there's such subjectiveness to it that, it's funny that, you know, and I, I don't want to, you know, bring up specific players, but it's like, I'll talk to, you know, different evaluators about the same player and one will be raving, you know, about what they would call makeup, you know, but about these components, you know, that if the intensity, the, the drive, the desire to win and all that, and it'll be conceived, you know, entirely differently by someone. Again, this is the subjectiveness of it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's that, not, it's not as clear cut as a fastball grade. Right. I mean, it's right. Yeah. To, yeah. To, to each their own in some component. Um, we, we were always trying to, 
um, just be clear with our scouts uh, with the Cubs as well, that, Hey, you know, just because a guy doesn't get his, his, uh, his questionnaire back to you right away, that, that's not necessarily a reflection of his makeup. You know, when, when we get him to the big leagues, we're not going to judge them <laughs> on how quickly they get questionnaires back to you. So let's keep the main things, the main things on what's important. And, but, but it, just as you said, I mean, what, what turns off one scout um, gets another scout excited. So it, it's, it, it's hard to say it's something we're going to be chasing. It's something we probably need to do a better job of collecting our data and testing over time. Um, but just kind of the nature of baseball and, and changing scouting departments that it, it makes it hard to, to, to have a 30 year study and, and come up with some sort of uh, empirical evidence on what we like and don't like about makeup in the end. And the, the grand thing that I think this is kind of the perfect thing to kind of wrap this up on is, is that the grand thing is, is that we're trying with so many of these things. The baseball industry is trying to make subjectivity objective. I mean, it's a continual quest. Like, I've had, you know, when you talk about the 20 to 80 scouting system or the different systems now that, uh, that many teams use, really what they're talking about is, is ideally I want to be able to put this in a, in a database, you know, we say spreadsheet, but it's not now, it's a database. I want to <laughs> be able to run things in, you know, whether it's R or SQL or whatever, that's going to be able to line it up. And to do that at the end of the day, it requires trying to make it quantifiable. And the toughest part of this is, is the, the never ending quest that is kind of part of this is, is okay, like you said with pitching, if I'm talking about Garrett Crochet last year, who only I think threw one start, but Garrett yeah. Crochet, and you're saying, okay, he throws a hundred. Here's the characteristics of his breaking ball. I'm, if I'm the White Sox who drafted him, I can take that plug that into a big league bullpen right now and feel comfortable that that will get out. Okay. That's, it's not entirely objective, but it's pretty straightforward. Yeah. But then I think back to the Cardinals drafting Jack Flaherty, you know, out of the powerhouse that, you know, that, that, you know, the, the same staff, you know, we had freed, we had G lead and all that. You're taking Jack Flaherty. And at the time he had all these wonderful characteristics, all these wonderful indicators, but you couldn't take Jack Flaherty at that time and say, I'm going to take him. And if I take the, what is quantifiable about his pitch characteristics, that will have success in the major leagues because it was like, no, no, no. We're projecting that five years from now, he may be throwing, which he is six, seven, you know, he'll be sitting five miles an hour harder than he is in his first pro season. Exactly. He's going to have different pitch characteristics than he has now. There's always going to be, I feel like there's, it's, it's very tricky. It's also what makes it fascinating is, is how subjective this is, how much projection we're talking about and trying to figure out what a 17 year old is going to look like as a 27 year old is never going to be easy. Yeah, we, we, we've got to be careful, right? I mean, not everything can become objective. I, I was just joking about human behavior, but that, that's very much the case uh, with the Cubs. We had done some work with a, a really high level research university and they brought up to us that, um, not just in sports, but in the whole business world, the best organizations are really good at marrying the objective with the subjective, but having a, a lot of respect that there's components that, to decisions that are just subjective, and we have to live with that, and we have to live with some chance, and we have to live with some uncertainty. Um, so we, we've got to understand that. We've got to understand how much value uh, wise scouts bring to the table, um, and we can't always quantify it. It's not going to be as neat and tidy and boxed up as, as college analytics are going to be. It just never is going to be. But the best organizations have a healthy respect for what those people can bring to the table, knowing 
that there's going to always be a subjective component when we're talking about predicting what a 17 year old is going to turn into at age 25 or 26. And that, um, you know, just uh, the, the objective information at that point can't tell us everything we need to know to be able to make that decision. So, um, yeah, I, I think we got to be careful about just wanting to objectify everything or, or make everything objective. Um, and just knowing there's always going to be a subjective component to our baseball decisions. And we have to have a healthy respect for that and, and know that um, people that, that are, are, there are people that are really good at the subjective side and we have to give a healthy weight and a healthy respect to those opinions. I, I don't want to put you on the spot too much, but I know that there have to have been times where you've gone to the ballpark and you've just known, you've seen a player and you're like, there's something about this player even though you may not be able to, if someone said, okay, why you're not going to be able to spell every aspect of that out. Is that a, is that a reasonable that's, assumption? It's, it's absolutely the case that that's happened. And then, then you spend a lifetime trying to figure out what in the world did I notice about that player that I could just tell you just made, you said yes, right away, almost before they even started playing. Um, so yeah, it, it's been the case a lot of, I shouldn't say a lot of times it, it, it definitely happens. And I think any scout that, that does it long enough, they've had that happen. And, and you spend a long time going back and there, there's probably no perfect answer to it, but the, the, those hunches come into play and, and those hunches ha happen sometime. And sometimes um, they have really good merit and, and, and really good decisions behind them. Right. I, and I don't want to say that, like, it's not like it happens every time you go to the ballpark. And if it does, then it's, you know, I mean, that'd be really weird, but, <laughs> but if it is, it's one of those things that's also tantalizing. It's what makes it to me so fun about all this is, is that you then spend your time racking your brain trying to figure out what it was and you don't always have an easy answer, do you? No, 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 man. I think that's always kind of what, what the best scouts are. The best scouts are constant learners and constant tinkerers to where they're always, whatever they learned the year before, they're, they're applying it to their, their own process the next year. And they're, and they're always just trying to get a little bit better as they move along. But yeah, those, those hunches come about and yeah, you, you spend the rest of your career, you know, hoping you run into those feelings again and hoping to be able to describe them a little bit better the next time. So you can, you can make the proper fight in the draft room when the, when the time is right. And, and again, there, but that's the other thing is, is that then what happens also, again, this is the value of longtime scouts is you mentioned like if Tom Kochman says he believes in a guy, you know, if you're in you know the Red Sox, you know, scouting room that carries a weight because, okay, Tom Kochman has these, Oh, I don't know, you know, dozens of players that he said this about before and no one has a hundred percent hit rate, but he has, you know, a very high hit rate. You know, again, it's going to be something where that's the value of veteran scouts is, is that you have these people who have kind of established this credibility of demonstrating over a course of time. It's like, well, I got to listen to that because I remember this time before and how important yeah, yeah. that was. No, his, 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 his moments of, of subjectivity have, have proven to be pretty good. And, you know, in, in if you know, Tom, he's not the one to speak up all the time, but when he's got the feeling for the player, he's going to speak up and you know what, he's, he's usually right. So we ought to lean on him and Hey, may, maybe the data doesn't back this, but we ought to bump up this player a little bit and, and jump on him around earlier, maybe than we were planning on just because, because of how good this person is at reading a subjective. You know, it's again, it is a fascinating subject. I think we could do this for the next, you know, five hours and we would <laughs> we would barely have scratched the surface, but I don't want to do that to you. So I, I really appreciate the time, Lucas. And uh, if they want to find out more about, you know, Visual Edge, you know, how would they do that? Yeah, visualedge.com. There's just a whole host of, uh, of information on there. And that's that's visual, V-I-Z-U-A-L, 
edge.com. Um, just a whole host of information on there. I, I write a blog um, about every week or every other week with, with some information as how it applies to baseball. We've got some really cool studies up there and we've got uh, you know, just, just more information on our product, how it applies to the baseball world and how it applies to the sports world at large. Well, thank you again for your time, Lucas. This has been a ton of fun and we will hopefully do this again at some point. Thanks, JJ. Always fun to catch up anytime. If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.